Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Made by Podster. Hello, and welcome to the podcast On The Trail Of. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about a case known as the Bear Brook Murders. We're returning to 80s America and a strange and smelly discovery that some kids make one day when they're playing in the woods. I recommend that you listen extra carefully today because the story I'm going to tell contains many characters, but it is also extremely interesting partly because the people who have helped solve the case are not only police officers, but also ordinary people. Bear Brook State Park is a 4,000-acre park in Allenstown, New Hampshire, in the United States. The state park offers visitors a wide range of recreational activities, including several beaches, over 60 kilometers of hiking trails, barbecue areas, fishing spots, and opportunities to play outdoor sports, such as archery, canoeing, and various ball games. Allenstown, the town in which the park is located, is a small town of just under 5,000 people that locals have described as very safe, a town where everyone knows each other and where everyone knows everything about each other. Allenstown is not really known for anything other than the state park and the murders that took place there. On the edge of Bearbrook State Park is a trailer park where dozens of people live in caravans of various sizes. Some of the trailers are large and stand on their own property, while others are smaller and stand almost side by side. In 1985, which is the year I want to take you back to today, the boys who lived in the trailer park often played in the state park, which was practically their backyard. They were well acquainted with the state park and their parents were fine with them spending their free time there. The game most popular with the boys was a version of hide-and-seek, where whoever had to find the others would ride through the forest on an ATV and from there try to spot the other kids. During their play, the boys had come across a large blue metal barrel. The barrel had not been sealed properly and plastic was sticking out from under the lid, causing the curious boys to tip the barrel over. From the barrel came a really bad smell, which they later described as the smell of spoiled milk, and out of it oozed a white liquid that the boys were sure was milk. Because of the disgusting smell coming from it, the boys did not approach the barrel further, and they decided to leave it alone. To the boys, there was nothing special about the barrel as such, but at least one of the boys told his parents about their find, although nothing more was ever done about it. It may be that the parents thought it was just childish talk. On November 10th, 1985, a local hunter was hiking in Bearbrook State Park when he came across the same barrel the boys had found months earlier. The curious hunter approached the barrel and noticed the same foul odour as the boys, 
so he thought to himself that some hunter might have left their game in the barrel, which had then decomposed. But when the man opened the lid of the barrel slightly and straightened the plastic inside, he discovered that there was a dead body in the barrel. From the smell and the unpleasant state of the body, the hunter could deduce that the body might have been there for quite some time. The hunter also noticed that a plant had grown through the plastic that the body was wrapped in, which also indicated that the body had been in the barrel for some time. The hunter was greatly disturbed by his find and reported it to the local police. According to a few sources, the man was so upset by the discovery that he was unable to return to the forest in question for more than 10 years. Police officers in Allenstown very rarely dealt with corpses or murders. Only one officer went to the find in the first place, believing that the hunter had made a mistake and that the barrel was really just a hunter's leftovers. This, as we know, was not the case. And when the police officer examined the barrel, he found that there was indeed a dead person inside. Although it had decomposed, the police were able to identify the body as a woman. Extra help was called and the area was cordoned off. It says a lot about policing in this small town that the local police didn't even have a cordon tape. They had to request some from the police in another town. Although the barrel containing the body was found in a wooded area, it was on private land where there once had been a small shop or kiosk. Only the rubble remained, but there was other rubbish on the site, such as abandoned appliances, car wrecks and rubbish. The owner of the land had previously been asked by the authorities to clean up his property, but as nothing had been done, the police had had to issue him with a fine because what resembled a refuse tip was deemed to pose a safety risk. After the body was found, police quickly went to see the owner of the land, but he swore he knew nothing about the barrel. He said that over the years, so many people had passed by his property that he had no way of knowing who would think of using it as a hiding place for a body. Initially, however, Police were in no hurry to question him. They were more focused on identifying the woman in the barrel and finding out what had happened to her. When the barrel was taken for further examination and its contents were completely emptied, the investigators got a surprise. In the barrel, they found another body belonging to a girl. Both the woman and the girl had died as a result of blows to the head. And as no clothes were found in the barrel, it had to be assumed that they had been placed naked in there. The bodies had been tied together with a piece of wire, and it could be seen that it must have taken a lot of effort to get the bodies into the barrel. Investigators were unable to determine exactly how long the barrel had been there. Their estimates ranged from several months to a few years. State police took over the case because Allenstown local police didn't have the resources to investigate such a substantial homicide. Their first task was to find out who the woman and girl in the barrel were, and initially they suspected a mother and daughter. But it was only a guess, because in 1985, DNA technology could not yet be used to investigate a case like this. The Allenstown police officers went round to the residence of the trailer park next to the state park and asked everyone if there had been a mother and daughter living there who had suddenly disappeared. However, all the residents of the trailer park agreed that the people who had been found in the barrel could not have been residents of the trailer park. They said they would have noticed if someone or something had suddenly disappeared from the area. A sketch of each of the deceased was drawn and distributed in the Allenstown area and throughout New Hampshire in the hope that someone would be able to identify the individuals, but to no avail. They also visited several elementary schools to ask if there was a girl who had suddenly disappeared from a school who might be the one found in the barrel. However, it soon became clear to police that no one was missing the mother and daughter, nor had they been reported missing, at least in any of the neighbouring states. As the sketch of the woman and girl from the barrel began to spread across the United States, police initially got some promising leads, but they all turned out to be dead ends. For months, finding the bodies was the main topic of discussion for locals, many of whom were saddened and shocked. However, everyone seemed to agree that the people found in the barrels must have come from somewhere far away, because no one recognised or missed them. In 1987, 
Two years after the barrel was found, the police decided that the bodies could be buried. They had examined them so thoroughly that there was no longer any investigative basis for keeping them. A small funeral and memorial service was held for the deceased, and they were buried at a cemetery plot for unidentified people. Many locals were disappointed that the identities of the deceased had not been established and felt that the police had given up too soon. Indeed, some of the police officers who had been involved in the investigation later said they thought the case would never be solved. They felt that the case could only be solved if someone confessed to the crime themselves. It took 15 years for the case to be reopened. The city's new detective, John Cody, was assigned to investigate whenever he had the time. Although new, he had heard about the mystery of the bodies in the barrel from his colleagues, and he immediately became deeply involved in the case, finding it very strange that in the 15 years that had passed, no one had come across the missing people they had found in the barrel. John was convinced that there must be someone somewhere who was missing them, and this led them to go through all the possible evidence that the police had collected during the initial investigation. He read the interviews and looked at the photographs that had been taken at the site where the bodies had been found in the barrel and retrieved the blue barrel that the bodies had been found in from the police evidence room to inspect it. John felt it was important to find out what the barrel had been used for in the past. Perhaps it could give them vital clues that would, after all these years, lead them to the perpetrator. The plastic in the barrel was also of interest to the investigators. There is not much information about it, but apparently investigators thought it was of a type used by the military, although it is not clear what for. One day, when John finally had time to delve into the old case, he decided to go to the crime scene and look at it with fresh eyes. The land was still owned by the same person as 15 years earlier, and it was in the same condition, despite the injunctions the owner had received to clean it up. As John walked around the property and deeper into the woods, he came across another blue barrel, similar to the one that had been found 15 years before. And in the barrel, he found a skeleton wrapped in plastic. Later, John said he could hardly believe it when he found the second blue barrel. He'd gone out to the state park to inspect the site and never in his wildest imagination thought he would come across something of this magnitude. With only bones left in the barrel, John surmised that the barrel had probably been brought to the site around the same time as the barrel the boys and then the hunter had found 15 years prior. Although the two barrels were less than 100 yards apart, the barrel had not been discovered during the police's initial investigation. When it was leaked to the public that another barrel had been found in the woods, which had been there since 1985, the police were in a hurry to explain themselves. Although the site had been cordoned off and searched in 1985, the second barrel had been just outside the area and therefore had not been noticed. It is unclear whether any passers-by in the area came across the barrel in the 15 years between the discoveries of the two barrels. A few sources have said that there were many blue barrels at the site, some of which had waste inside. It may be that the barrel had been seen, but that no one had taken much notice of it. Police said that at no point in their investigation did they have reason to believe that there were even more bodies, which is why they spent the effort trying to identify the victims in one barrel and the perpetrator. When the new barrel was examined more closely, it was also identified as containing the skeletons of two people. A two-year-old girl and a three-year-old girl. They had also died from blows to the head. Police were working on a theory that all four people found in the barrels were related and suspected that the woman who had been found was the mother of the three children. As DNA technology had developed over the years, investigators had no choice but to re-excavate the two bodies that had been buried 13 years earlier to carry out the tests needed to prove or disprove their theory. That decision was rather unpopular, however, and was opposed by locals and police alike. They felt that it was outrageous and insulting to exhume the skeletons, even though it was not without reason. When a DNA test was finally carried out, the police had a definitive answer as to whether their theory was correct. The woman who had been found in the first barrel and the eight- to nine-year-old girl who had been found lying with her were related. 
The two-year-old who had been found in the second barrel was also related, but police could not initially determine how closely and whether they were a mother and her daughters. This was later confirmed by further investigation. Curiously, the three-year-old girl found in the second barrel was not blood-related to any of the other victims. This further complicated the investigation, and police now had to search and review missing persons reports for both the family of three and the young child. It wasn't just the DNA technology that had developed over the years, but also the technology to make phantom drawings of what the victims might have looked like when they were alive. These images were spread across the US and Canada, but no one seemed to recognise them. The review, however, ended with the same conclusion as 15 years earlier. No one matching the description around the time of disappearance had been reported missing. It seemed that no one had been missing the woman, the eight or nine-year-old, or the two small children in the barrel for 15 years. Now, I'm going to go back in time to the 80s, and I hope you'll hang in there, even though what I'm about to get into now may not immediately sound like anything to do with the murder case I've been talking about so far, but I promise you there's a reason I'm telling you the story this way. In 1986, residents of the Holiday Host Trailer Park in San Bernardino, California, took on new residents. A man in his 30s named Gordon Jensen and his five-year-old daughter, Lisa, moved into a small trailer, and Gordon quickly became a familiar face among the other trailer park residents when he took a job repairing the trailers in the park. Gordon became friends with some of his neighbours and told them openly about the difficulties he and Lisa faced. Gordon told them that Lisa's mother had died in a car accident and that he had been left to raise their daughter alone. He also told of his money problems and said that his financial solution had been the reason why he and his daughter had had to move to the trailer park. Many of the trailer park's other residents found sympathy for Gordon and Lisa, probably especially Lisa, who tearfully talked about how she missed her mother and how much she wanted them to live together. Some of the residents in the trailer park were concerned about Lisa. She and her father lived in a really small trailer. She was never seen with toys, and it also seemed that she didn't get to eat very much. No one blamed Gordon for the conditions he offered his daughter. On the contrary, they felt sorry for him and were very keen to help him. One retired couple got particularly close to Gordon and Lisa, who played with their granddaughter when the granddaughter visited. Gordon also opened up to the retired couple, telling them how difficult it was to raise Lisa alone. He felt he didn't know how to go about it and that he didn't have the financial means to give the things she needed and wanted. So the retired couple came up with a rather unconventional proposal. They had an adult daughter, who had long wanted to be a mother, but for some reason she couldn't get pregnant. The daughter might therefore be interested in adopting Lisa, if Gordon thought it was a good idea too. Maybe it was a different time, or maybe it's because this story takes place in a completely different part of the world, but to my ears, it sounds a bit out of the ordinary to offer to adopt someone else's child in this way. Gordon wasn't entirely dismissive, though, as he felt it would be the best option for everyone. The couple told him that their daughter was married and that both she and her husband had good jobs and desperately wanted a child. Finally, Gordon made an agreement with the couple's daughter that Lisa would move in with them for a three-week trial period, after which the couple would see how well Lisa had settled in and how everything was going. If all went well and Gordon still felt it was a good idea after the period, the couple would get a lawyer so the adoption could proceed legally through official channels. Unfortunately, it didn't quite work out that way. Although Lisa was a sweet girl, the prospective adoptive parents noticed some disturbing aspects of her behaviour. She could suddenly become inconsolable, angry over even the smallest things, and had exhibited inappropriate and transgressive behaviour towards a playmate, which led the adults to suspect that Lisa herself might have been a victim of incest. The prospective adoptive parents got Lisa to tell them what she had experienced, and she confirmed their suspicions, which were proved during some subsequent investigations. It was also shown that the abuse of Lisa had taken place over a long period of time. Although the prospective adoptive parents were thrilled to learn this information, they did not contact the authorities. They wanted to speak to Gordon first. Three weeks later, however, when Lisa was due to return to her father, Gordon was nowhere to be found in the trailer park. He had disappeared. 
He hadn't given any notice, nor had he quit his job or in any way hinted that he might be leaving. He had disappeared, like the dew from the sun, and nobody knew about Lisa's other relatives. A few days later, they hired a lawyer and contacted an adoption agency to arrange for Lisa's adoption. But the professionals present at the meetings quickly got the impression that something was very wrong. Lisa seemed absent, and the prospective adoptive parents knew little about Lisa or her father. Eventually, the adoption agency staff contacted the police, who were initially very confused and thought that Gordon had just temporarily left her, as if there had been an accident, for example. So it was only after some time that they realised what Lisa had been through. Lisa was interviewed, but what she said in these interviews has not been made public. But there is probably a lot that she could not tell about her past because she was only five years old and probably already very traumatised. Police also began to wonder if Lisa was even Gordon's real daughter, fearing that she might have been kidnapped and was missing by her real parents somewhere. Eventually, Lisa was adopted too, but not by the couple who had originally wanted to adopt her. I don't know if the retired couple and their adult daughter had any contact with Lisa, but I wish they had kept in touch. However, their actions helped to bring Lisa to safety, and one can only imagine what might have happened if no one had helped her. In any case, according to all sources, Lisa had a good life with her new family. The police were naturally very curious to find out where Gordon had disappeared to. They asked the other residents of the trailer park what Gordon had told them about his life and his past, but no one could help them. According to Gordon's neighbours, he'd never shared any details about his life, other than the fact that his ex-wife, Lisa's mother, had died. But the story of her mother's death varied depending on who he had told it to. To some, he had said she had died in a car accident, and to others, he had said she had cancer. A few residents of the trailer park could tell that Gordon often made long-distance calls to other parts of the United States from the state park's public phone booth. But no one could say more about the calls, and I don't know if the police ever tried to investigate this lead. Police investigators went to the manager of the place where Gordon had worked and asked to see his job application from when he'd applied for the job. It turned out that all the contact details on the application were false. He had no phone number, and the address he had given was actually the address of a motel in Texas. His social security number was also fake, and all his wages had been paid in cash, even though that was against company policy. This discovery caused problems for the person in charge of payroll, because the cash payments, which should have been made in the form of checks, had been made without the boss's permission. Why Gordon wanted to be paid in cash is fairly obvious. He did not want the money to be traced back to him in any way. Eventually, the police decided to try find Gordon's fingerprints elsewhere in the trailer park. His boss was able to report that his last job had been repairing TV and video equipment in the trailer park's common areas. But when police examined a video recorder, there were no fingerprints to be found on the top of the video player. It had been wiped clean, as had the inside of the machine. It was only after a thorough search of the machine that police eventually found a partial fingerprint, which was enough for police to enter it into their database. There was a match, but the match was not registered under Gordon Jensen, but under the name Curtis Kimball. Although Curtis's name was found in the police register, the police did not get far with this lead because this name was at least as false as the first one, as there was no social security number or other information registered under the name Curtis Kimball. For convenience, however, I will refer to him as Curtis in the following. The reason that Curtis's name and fingerprints were in the police database at all was that just a few weeks prior to his arrival at the trailer park, Curtis had been driving drunk with Lisa in the car. The police had stopped him for drunk driving, and there he must have given false information that the police for some reason had not picked up. They'd just entered the information he had given them into the system and left it at that, just as they had done nothing more about Curtis's outing. But the police were now putting everything into finding him, and if it turned out that Lisa was not his own child, he would not only be charged with fraud and sexual abuse of a child, but also with kidnapping. Lisa's story had made a big impression on them, and the police wanted Curtis to face charges. Unfortunately, finding him was an immensely difficult task for the police, because, as we know, the fingerprints in the video machine had only led to a false identity, and the police suspected that all the other information he had given about himself would also be false. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Finally, in 1988, the person posing as Gordon and Curtis was caught. Police had stopped a car on the highway that had been reported stolen, and inside it was him. To the police, he gave another false name, but they also took his fingerprints, which linked him to the suspicions about his deeds that had set the police investigation in motion years before. When questioned, however, Curtis refused to say much about Lisa or why he had left her. The police took some blood samples to do a paternity test and finally find out if Lisa really was Curtis's daughter. But just as the second stage of the paternity test was about to be carried out, that is, when Curtis was due to have a blood test, Curtis's lawyer announced that he had accepted an offer from the prosecution. If he pleaded guilty to abandoning his child, he would go to prison for three years. If not, he would be charged with other crimes and thus face a longer sentence. It is possible that Curtis accepted this offer because he wanted to avoid a long prison sentence, but it is even more likely that he accepted it to avoid the imminent paternity test, because Curtis knew it would give investigators access to his past. Curtis was convicted of abandoning his child and was to serve three years in a California prison. Lisa's fate therefore remained unclear as Curtis had not been convicted of the fraud and sexual abuse charges against him. In fact, he was never prosecuted or convicted. I am not, of course, aware of the reasons behind this decision, but I find it quite outrageous that the charges were dropped. I'm also surprised that the paternity test was not carried out despite the prosecution's offer. It seems obvious to me that it could have shed light not only on Curtis's, but also on Lisa's true identity. After just over a year in prison, Curtis was paroled. During his parole, however, he did not report to his parole officer, as he was supposed to after a week, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. The police were on his trail again. At this point, the story takes a turn, but also the information I'm going to set out here is important in providing an overview of the crimes I'm describing in this episode and the many ramifications that are tied to the blue barrels in Bear Brook State Park. In 1999, Yoon Sun Jun, a 43-year-old woman living alone in California, had met a man. The daughter of Korean immigrants, Yoon Soon worked as a chemist and made ceramics in her spare time. She was artistic, sensitive and curious, and interested in religion and spirituality. However, Yoon Soon had not much luck in love and had never started a family, although she had dreamed of it. For this reason, her circle of friends were all happy for her when she finally met a man. His name was Larry Vanner. The first person Yoon Soon introduced Larry to was her friend, Renee Rose. Renee was a little older than Yoon Soon and lived close to her. The friend was shocked, to say the least, when she first met Larry at a party. He was filthy. He had a long beard, unkempt hair, and was wearing clothes with holes and stains, and driving around in a broken van. He just mumbled short answers to Renee's questions and was clearly very uninterested in getting to know her. 
Rene was genuinely puzzled as to what Yoon Soon could possibly see in Larry. To her mind, they had nothing in common, and he didn't remind her at all of any of the men Yoon Soon had previously shown interest in. Yoon Soon's family had a similar reaction. They also noticed that he was unkempt and distant. At a family gathering, he engaged more with the free alcohol being served than with any of Yoon Soon's family, or telling them anything about himself. Yoon Soon's circle wanted to say something to her, but they were also afraid of hurting her. Eventually, however, they felt compelled to question her choice of partner, which led to her distancing herself from her family. Yoon Soon was disappointed and hurt that her family didn't even try to understand why she'd fallen for Larry. Yoon Soon and Larry had met because Larry had to do some repairs on her house. No one really knows how it developed into a romantic relationship, but many of Yoon Soon's acquaintances have wondered if it was because Yoon Soon felt sorry for Larry and wanted to help him. Larry, in fact, lived in the trunk of his van and was clearly struggling to make ends meet. After a few months of dating, Yoon Soon apparently asked Larry to move in with her, though the information I have on this is a bit unclear. In a documentary, friend Renee says that not long after Larry moved his stuff in with her, Yoon Soon was beginning to regret asking him to move in. The couple stayed together, though, and a year later they were married, unofficially, in a homemade Star Trek-themed wedding ceremony that took place in the backyard of Yoon Soon's house. I'm not sure why they got married unofficially or what it entails, but that's what the sources say. Perhaps Yoon Soon had a change of heart since she had complained about Larry moving in with her friend, so the idea of marriage no longer sounded all that bad. No one from Yoon Soon's family had been invited to the wedding, and the relationship between Yoon Soon and her family had been all but destroyed as a result. Renee, the friend, was also concerned that Larry's motives were purely financial and that Yoon Soon was being taken advantage of by him. Yoon Soon was well paid for her work as a chemist, and she also sold the pottery she made. Larry, on the other hand, hardly worked at all. He got a few dollars here and there for some odd jobs, but otherwise he did not contribute to their shared household. In Renee's opinion, Yoon Soon had become more apathetic after she began her relationship with Larry, and no longer had the same passion for ceramics that she'd shown earlier. A passion that had previously brought her and Renee close, as Renee was passionate about ceramics too. Renee was therefore particularly pleased when, in May 2002, Yoon Soon suggested that they go abroad together on a ceramics course. Yoon Soon and Renee began planning the trip together, and they were both very much looking forward to it. The night before their departure, Renee asked Yoon Soon to call her the next morning before they left. But Yoon Soon never called, and they never went to ceramics class either. Yoon Soon's cell phone was off, so Renee called her home. It was Larry who answered. He told her there had been an emergency in Yoon Soon's family and that she had travelled across the country to be with them. The mother had fallen ill, and Yoon Soon was very upset, he said. Renee became suspicious. First, she knew that Yoon Soon was not on good terms with her family, and second, Yoon Soon would have informed her if the planned trip had to be cancelled. Renee let it go, but when a week had passed, she still hadn't heard from Yoon Soon. Every time she called Yoon Soon, Larry answered the phone, and every time he had a new excuse. Maybe Yoon Soon wasn't home, or maybe he didn't know her phone was off. When Renee began to suspect that Larry wasn't telling the whole truth, she went to Yoon Soon's home, and when no one answered the door, she looked in the windows and saw that the kitchen was filled with garbage and dishes. This was suspicious, for Yoon Soon was very clean and took great care to keep a tidy home. She would never, Renee thought, have allowed her home to become so dirty. When Renee called Larry again, he said that Yoon Soon had said she would never speak to Renee again and that they should cut contact. Yoon Soon would never do such a thing. That was the last straw for Renee, who then reported her friend missing. However, Renee could not get the police to start a search, since Larry had told Renee that it was Yoon Soon's wish to be left alone. The police felt there was no need to do more about the case. There was nothing illegal about that. The truth only came out when a police officer became interested in the case and thought Yoon Soon had to be found. The police called Larry and questioned him about Yoon Soon, and to them, he gave a different explanation than he had given Rene at the time. 
When the officers realised this, they asked him to come to the police station for further questioning. Larry agreed. During questioning, the police asked questions about his and Yoon relationship and suggested that Yoon might have committed suicide. However, Larry said that this could not possibly be the case. The police thought there was something odd about Larry. He did answer their questions, but always very briefly, and he kept changing his explanation of Yoon whereabouts and refusing to give the police his contact details. The police asked for Larry's full name, social security number and fingerprints, and when they searched their database, they found a match to another person. You may have guessed who. Curtis Kimball. Some of the interviews with Larry, or Curtis, or Gordon, or whatever we should call him, can be found on YouTube, where I also watched a documentary about the crimes in this episode. In the documentary, you can see video footage from the interrogation room where the police officers, in a reproachful tone, inform Larry that they know he has lied about his identity and who he really is. Because even though the police had a number of cases on him under the name Curtis, they didn't think that that was his real name either. In their paperwork, the police could also see that Larry had absconded during his probation, had not reported to his probation officer, and was therefore wanted, which is why they arrested and remanded him in custody. Larry had voluntarily agreed to give his fingerprints, which actually seems a bit odd since he didn't have to do so. Perhaps he thought, and several have speculated, that the results would take several days to arrive and that the police would let him go in the meantime. It may be that he assumed he could get away while they waited for his results. But technology had advanced. It could take as little as an hour to get the results with the technology available. Because of the many suspicious circumstances surrounding the case, police decided to search Yoon-soon's home. There was an incredibly bad smell inside the house, and the kitchen, as Renee had seen through the window, was filled with garbage, dishes and leftover food. Otherwise, however... Nothing in particular caught their attention. The other rooms of the house were quite clean and well-kept, and in the garage, Yoon-soon's pottery and other of her works of art were stored. As the police left, they noticed a door at the back of the garage leading them to the basement of the house. In the basement were tools, assorted junk, and a very tall pile of cat litter. In fact, so much cat litter that it had reached the officers' waists. The police knew Yoon-soon had had a cat, It was now buried in the house's back garden, but no cat would have needed so much cat litter at once. It was clear that something was wrong, which is why additional crews were called to the scene. As the search team began to move the gravel, a mummified human foot appeared. It was still too early to identify who it belonged to, but police assumed it was Yoon-soon they had found. Around the basement, they also found tools with blood on them. Subsequent investigations confirmed their suspicions. It was Yoon-soon's blood. When the body was identified and autopsied, the coroner found that Yoon-soon had died from a severe blow to the head. Naturally, suspicion immediately turned to Larry, but in a way, this was also an unsatisfactory outcome because the police still did not know his true identity. Larry, who was in custody, refused to give them any further information, just as it was still unclear whether he was the father of Lisa, who had been abandoned in the trailer park. A small but interesting detail from the case is that Larry did not initially plead guilty to Yoon-soon's murder. Therefore, a lengthy trial was expected. But on the day he was due to appear in court, Larry pleaded guilty, despite his lawyer's advice. This detail has been highlighted in several of the sources I have used in this podcast. The documentary I mentioned earlier, the Bear Brook podcast, and various written sources. Perhaps Larry pleaded guilty in hopes of getting out of the paternity test and that the case would be quickly dismissed. But six months after the trial in which Larry was sentenced to 15 years in prison for the murder of Yoon-soon, the paternity test was finally taken. It showed that Lisa was in no way related to the man who had impersonated Gordon, Curtis and Larry and who had taken her to the trailer park and eventually abandoned her. Although the police could now rule out that the man was Lisa's father, they still did not know who her parents were and the police considered it unlikely that her parents would have voluntarily handed her over to someone else. In 2010, when Larry had served seven years... He died in prison of lung cancer, 
COPD and severe pneumonia. And when he died, no one still knew his true identity. Therefore, no relatives could be informed of his passing. No one had visited him in prison, and he'd not received a single phone call or letter while he was incarcerated. Before Larry's death, the police had again stopped by to ask him about Lisa, but he clearly did not want to talk to the police or to help them in any other way. He said, for example, that because he had been an alcoholic, he couldn't remember if he had a daughter or if he had ever kidnapped anyone. In 2016, when Lisa was well into her 30s, she contacted the police unit that had been involved in investigating her identity. Lisa suggested that she could send her DNA sample to a genetic family tree company to identify possible relatives. The police agreed to Lisa's idea, and after a few months, Lisa received an overwhelming amount of results. Distant relatives whom she, in consultation with the police, decided to contact. However, it was difficult to trace Lisa's immediate family, so they called in a genealogist called Barbara Ray Venter. Barbara may be a familiar name to some listeners. She was the one who conducted the genetic research that identified the serial killer known as the Golden State Killer. With Barbara's help, police tracked down a cousin of Lisa's father. He lived in New Hampshire and was able to report that Lisa's real name was Dawn Bowden and that her mother was Denise Bowden. Lisa, or Dawn, as she was really called, had disappeared with her mother on Thanksgiving Day in 1981, when Lisa was just six months old. Lisa's mother, Denise, was still missing, and no one knew what had happened to her. Lisa's grandfather, who was still alive, was able to provide police with some new information. Denise, Lisa's mother, had been dating a man called Bob Evans at the time of her disappearance. Bob was not Lisa's biological father, and the grandfather did not actually know who he was. The reason the grandfather had never reported Denise and Lisa missing was that he had assumed they had run off with Bob Evans because of financial problems. Because the police suspected that Gordon or Curtis or Larry or whatever his name was was might somehow be involved, they showed Lisa's grandfather a picture of him. And immediately, Lisa's grandfather said he recognised the man. It was Bob Evans. But it was to turn out that this was not the man's true identity either. Police compared the four bodies in the barrel to Lisa and Larry's DNA. There was nothing to suggest that Larry had anything to do with the victims, but the police wanted to be sure. The results of their investigations show that none of the people in the barrels were related to Lisa, so neither was her mother among the victims who had been found years before in the state park. Instead, the investigators discovered that one of the children in the barrels, the one not related to any of the other victims, was Larry's biological child. Police felt certain that Larry must therefore have killed all four victims and hidden them in the barrels, although many questions still hovered in the air, such as where Denise, Lisa's biological mother, might be, and who Larry, or Curtis, or Bob, really was. In 2017, the US police released a video recording of the interrogation of Larry. What they hoped to get out of the release was that someone would recognize him and provide them with his true identity. After a few months, police were also contacted by someone who said Larry was probably his father, though he hadn't seen him in decades. The man agreed to be DNA tested, and the test confirmed his son's suspicions. It could tell that the man with the multiple identities was Terry Rasmussen. The police finally knew his true identity. Terry was born on December 23, 1943, in Denver, Colorado. At age 10, he moved to Arizona with his parents, where he attended school until age 17, when he dropped out to join the military, where he served in the Navy for six years. He then moved to Hawaii, where in 1968 he married a woman with whom he had four children, twin girls, a boy and a girl. The four children have since given interviews to various media, telling what it was like to live with their father. Terry and his family moved to California, where the mother stayed at home and Terry supported them. The family was not well off. The son has since said that he was abused by his father and that he suspects his sisters were too. His earliest memory of his father is of him grinding his lit cigarettes into him. When his mother realised this, seeing the burns on them, she packed up the children and her things and moved away from Terry, 
who was now alone. One of Terry's daughters has since said that after becoming aware of her father's actions, she finds herself feeling survivor's guilt. That is, guilt for having survived when others did not. She's convinced that if her mother had stayed with Terry, she would not have survived. But then others might not have ended up victims of her father. If I understand correctly, the children had no contact with their father, Terry, afterwards. Only once had Terry attempted contact when he sought out his children and former wife with an unidentified woman. In 2017, police announced that they believed Terry had killed the unknown victims they had found in the barrels. They also said they suspected Terry had more victims who just hadn't been found yet. The following year, in 2018, a podcast was released about the barrels found in the woods and their possible connection to Terry Rasmussen. A listener of the podcast, Rebecca Heath, was a librarian interested in criminal cases and genealogy. In her spare time, she surfed crime forums and browsed various genetic family tree websites, but it was mostly just as a hobby. And when she became interested in the Bear Brook murders, it was the first time she would get involved in a criminal investigation. Rebecca was from New Hampshire and had lived there all her life when she heard the podcast about the unidentified bodies that had been found in a park in her state. During her genealogy research, Rebecca had also come across a woman looking for information about a woman named Marlise Honeychurch and her daughter, Sarah McWaters. The woman searching for them had posted on a genealogy forum that she was Sarah's aunt and that she had been looking for them for years. The message from the aunt had been published in 2000, and 17 years later, Rebecca came up with a theory that the victims in the barrels could be Marlise and Sarah, despite the fact that they had disappeared from California, and New Hampshire is at the very other end of the US, and they had no connections there. Rebecca later contacted Sarah's aunt and told her she would like to try to help her find Sarah and her mother. The aunt could tell that at the time of her disappearance, Marlise had been married to a man who was in the military. His name was Bob Evans. Rebecca recognised the name from the Bear Brook podcast, but didn't want to say too much to Sarah's aunt right away. According to her aunt, Marlise had two children, and along with them and Bob Evans, she had left California in 1978, never contacting her relatives or friends again. Marlise's two children had two different fathers, but since they'd both been unhappy with Marlise, neither had been particularly surprised when Marlise had disappeared with the children. As a result, neither of them had officially reported Marlise as missing. Rebecca told the police about her discovery, and after some hesitation, they decided to investigate further. By comparing the DNA of the people found in the barrel with information from the suspected relatives, it turned out that Rebecca had been right. The woman in one of the barrels was Marlise Honeychurch. Two of the children in the barrels were her daughters, Marie Vaughan and Sarah McWaters, and the last child, the one not related by blood to Marlise and her children, was Terry Rasmussen's biological child. That's how three of the mysterious bodies were identified, although there are still major questions and holes in the case. In conclusion, I would like to summarise what we have been tracking today, as there's been a lot of information and an incredible number of false identities to keep track of. So, Terry Rasmussen killed the victims in the barrel, and under the cover name Larry Vanner, he also killed Yunsun. He left a girl named Lisa in a trailer park, where he used the alias Gordon Jensen and later Curtis Kimball. He probably also killed Lisa's mother Denise, but her body has never been found. Lisa has been able to report that she had siblings who had died following a camping trip after eating poisonous mushrooms, which is why investigators suspect Terry killed Lisa's siblings and hid their bodies. To Denise and the victims found in the barrels, Marlise Honeychurch, Sarah McWaters and Marie Vaughan, he had used the same name, Bob Evans. No one knows the name of his daughter, who was also found in the barrels, or who her mother was. It is not known what happened to the mother, but the police theory is that she was also killed. The police are convinced that one day, using DNA technology, it will be possible to find out the identity of the unknown girl and her mother. Both police officers and people related to Terry Rasmussen believe that he has several victims on his conscience who have just not been found yet. Terry was an incredibly skilled liar and eminent at creating believable false identities 
and in doing so, he had traveled all over the United States, going from odd job to odd job. Terry Rasmussen was a serial killer, but not a traditional one. The main difference between him and the typical serial killer is that he killed people who were close to him, his girlfriends, his children, and his grandchildren. Serial killers don't usually do this. They choose their victims at random, but Terry had a different strategy. He sought out single mothers to get to know their children so he could exploit them, and when he got tired of them, he killed them and moved on to the next person. Terry, who died in prison, never showed any remorse for his actions and never confessed to them apart from the killing of Yoon I have long been interested in this case, even before the victims in the barrels were identified a few years ago. What captivates me about this case is how haphazard its resolution has been. Although, of course, much of the resolution has also been made possible by improved DNA technology. What excites me about this story is that the murder of Yoon and the discovery of the second barrel happened because there were diligent police officers who did not give up but continued to investigate and search. Hopefully, at some point, we will find out even more about Terry and what he did in his life and the places he found himself. He may have dozens of unidentified victims all over the United States. There's no telling how many crimes he is ultimately linked to. I hope the identity of his daughter and her mother will be revealed, but perhaps it will also require the case to once again catch the attention of a dedicated investigator or an amateur sleuth. That was the story of the Bear Brook murders, and I hope you found the case as interesting and thought-provoking as I did. Listen in next time, when I'm on the trail of a new and exciting case. <laughs>